All right. My name is Dave McMurray, and I'm one of the pastors here. If I have not met you, I would love to meet you. Uh, and there's some news that some of you have been waiting for. Yes, my grandbaby is here. So, yeah. Super excited about that. Um, so thank you for your prayers. Uh, continue to pray for them, right? It's such a joy to welcome the little one into the world. I've got plenty of pictures to show you if you want to see some. I've got about 500 on the phone just from two days with my new grandchild. Baby Ava is her name. And one of the super exciting things is she has hair, not something our children ever had as babies. So we're, we're totally pumped about that. Um, but continue to pray for them. We're, we're excited about it. Uh, so I'm holding on to the beard a little bit longer. Although, man, as I get older, it gets more and more itchy. It's like it's drying out. So maybe that's old age. I'm not sure. Um, we are going to start a new series today, and so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Matthew. Uh, we have a habit in our church of preaching through books of the Bible primarily. Occasionally, we'll do topical series, so we're starting in Matthew 6 today, and what we're going to be doing in this new series, it's called Talking with God, the Ancient Art of Prayer. We're going to be hitting some of the greatest hits on prayer in the Bible. So we're going to kind of look through some, some main passages that are really central and helpful and helping us understand this privilege we have of talking with God. It's this great privilege we have of having a relationship with Him. He wants us to talk to Him, but we also recognize, man, that's a hard thing for us. It's kind of confusing and weird. We don't always really understand how to do that. So we just kind of want to work through these texts and learn together how to talk with God. Um, so this time period that we're entering into is a historical time period, sometimes known as Lent. Um, and that word Lent comes linguistically from the lengthening of days, right? So it's in the spring, the days are getting longer. Uh, and so historically, this time of Lent is often seen as a time of preparation and prayer leading up to Easter. So Easter in April is the time when the church remembers the resurrection. It's kind of the, the yearly time of remembering the Passover and when Jesus rose from the dead. And so just to be clear, uh, we don't bind our consciences. Uh, we don't feel like we're under compulsion to observe old traditional calendar days. Matter of fact, we, we disagree pretty strongly with some of the doctrine of the, the ancient traditional Roman church. Uh, but we do recognize, man, this is just kind of a traditional time that a lot of people are seeing. So what we want to do is we want to reclaim this time and say, what, what would it mean for us to really make the most of this time to think about Jesus, uh, to celebrate the goodness he's given to us in his death and resurrection. We've put together a little guide. We call it the Resurrection Prayer Guide. And so we said, let's, let's try to, as a church, get on the same page. Every day has just a couple of verses to read, a simple prayer that you can pray. We also encourage you to take some baby steps of fasting, something a lot of us are not familiar with, so something maybe you could try over this time period. And to be clear, uh, fasting is not anything we do to impress God, but it's a tool uh, that we pull out to help us focus on God and on the gifts that he's already given to us. So these are some tools we're going to encourage you to take up. Uh, this little handout is in the back of the room. It's also in the rack in the hallway. So you can grab one of these. I think we're going to put them online as well. And while we're encouraging everybody to read through and pray through this guide, we're also going to be talking on Sundays about prayer. So today it's Matthew 6, and we're going to focus in on authentic spirituality. Authentic spirituality. So we don't want to just go through the, the motions of dead ritual, but we want to have an authentic relationship, a real relationship with Jesus. And authentic is kind of a buzzword. You know, it's one of those words that sounds cool, sounds good, but what does it really mean? And so I just want to acknowledge that I know that can be an overused word, 
And it can be a word that's thrown around in our culture. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at how Jesus defines authentic spirituality here in Matthew 6. And so Jesus, in the middle of what's sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, here in chapter 6, he's going to say, you're going to do religious things, but you're not going to do them just to be seen. So some people do religious things just to be seen. And they believe that by doing them and by showing these religious works that they have some kind of favor with man and with God. Jesus says the favor is given to us in our personal relationship with Jesus. And so I think we can all fall into this trap. And and before we look at the text, I wanted to tell a story of something that happened to me years ago, many years ago, when I was 14 years old. So I think it was about in the eighth grade. I was at a friend's house in our neighborhood, and we were shooting baskets, playing a little basketball in his driveway, shooting hoops at the the driveway hoops there. And as a 14-year-old, he'd been given permission to, to back up the car when it was underneath the basketball goal, right? And so he went in and got the keys, and he got into his parents' blue Ford station wagon, and he backed it up about 50 feet, and he left it there, and we shot some hoops. But I think he'd gotten a little taste of something when he did that, and he was like, hey, Dave, why don't we drive it around the block? And of course, I'm a dumb junior high kid, so I was like, okay, sure, let's do it. His parents were gone. They'd taken the other car somewhere. We're like, let's do it. We jumped in the car. We start driving around the neighborhood. We're driving down kind of the main thoroughfare of this neighborhood, the main street that all the little feeder streets come off of. And as we're driving, off in the distance, I can see this vehicle that, that looks a lot like his parents' van. And I'm like, huh, that's interesting. Well, I'm sure it's not them because he said they'd be gone for a few hours. But as the van got closer, we were like, oh no, it's his parents. And as they got even closer, my friend did something really strange. He said, Dave, duck. (laughs) And so he's driving and we're supposed to duck under the the dash there so they won't know it's us. Now, the problem with that logic in the moment is like, I think they were the only ones with the 10-year-old faded blue Ford station wagon in the neighborhood and they were going home. So they're going to notice that it was missing and their son was missing. So after we did that, he realized quickly he's in big trouble. So we pulled off to my house, which is a few blocks away, and he's in there just, he's just freaking out. I mean, he's about to collapse into tears, but as a strong junior high boy, he's staving off the tears, I think, by just repeatedly cursing to himself over and over again. Like, oh no, oh no, oh no. Just, you know, over and over and over again, I'm going to be in so much trouble. And finally, he gets an idea. And and here it is. It's an idea that, that really connects with the text. He says, Dave, you have one of those Christian music albums, right? I'll tell my parents that I had to get the car to come borrow a Christian music album from you, so then everything will be okay. See, I'll go back and I'll say, but I was borrowing Dave's Christian music album. I think it was actually a tape, and I'll explain that to the 20-year-olds later, but I think it was actually a tape. And So he thought that was going to make it okay. And and Jesus is talking to a people in the first century, a religious people that thought, who cares that we're in rebellion against God? If we just kind of show off some religious stuff, if we wag around a Christian album or we dress up and pretend to be religious, then all will be forgotten. And Jesus says, no, that's, that's not authentic. You have to have a real relationship with God. And that's what he's calling us to here. He's calling us to to something deep and beautiful that God creates, this relationship of father and child. 
that we can have only because of what God has done for us through Jesus. So the rest of the New Testament explains how we get this relationship. Jesus is just going to explain the contrast between fake spirituality and an authentic relationship of love with our Heavenly Father. He's going to say, you want the real relationship. You don't want the fake thing. The rest of the New Testament explains how that works. The rest of the New Testament says, well, because Jesus died for us, he takes our sin, he gives us his resurrection life, and when God sees you by faith, he sees you as his adopted child. You are his. He's your Heavenly Father. And now Jesus is going to explain, what's the contrast between having a real Heavenly Father and having this fake spirituality. So let's read. It's in Matthew 6, and I don't think I mentioned this, but we've got some black Bibles under the chairs. It's page 810. Page 810 in the black Bibles. We'll read starting in Matthew 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, when they have received, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil." For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So he's setting up a contrast. He says there's a, there's a kind of spirituality when you're doing things to be seen by others, and you think the reward is being seen by others, and he's saying that's all the reward they'll ever get. There's this whole different reward of having a relationship with God, the personal God of the universe, of seeing him as a father. In the Old Testament, Um, sometimes there are hints of God revealing himself as Father, but it was very uncommon for people to pray to God as Father. This is a new and beautiful and deep thing that Jesus is bringing kind of to the foreground that was maybe kind of hidden or kind of veiled in the background in the Old Testament. Now Jesus is saying, "This this is central. Everything else flows from this relationship. An authentic spirituality flows from knowing God as Father, as a Father who who loves you. And so as we're working through this text, we're going to look at things that all religions do we're going to be saying, yeah, do the things that all religions do, 
but do it for a completely different motivation. So the question I want you to be asking as we're looking through this today is, what is my motivation? Do I have an authentic motivation of a true relationship with my Heavenly Father, or am I just kind of going through the motions, trying to create a relationship that's not there? Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at the text in more details. God, thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us. We thank you that we can talk to you. We thank you that you love us, and we see that most clearly in Jesus who came after us to reveal to us your love, your forgiveness, your grace. God, I pray that that would so grip our hearts that we would know you as adopted children. We would know your delight in us, and that would drive us then to to give and and pray and fast, not to be seen, not to achieve some sort of merit, but because you love us. And so in return, we are loving you and loving others. Help us, God. This is impossible without you. And so we pray that your spirit would meet us here and empower us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's a very simple outline matching Jesus' outline, right? There's authentic spirituality and fake spirituality. The word he uses is hypocrites, which in the Greek is wearing a mask, right? So are you going to wear a mask and fake it, or are you going to have an authentic relationship with your heavenly father? Those are the two options that Jesus lays out in the text. And then he's going to apply it to three different religious things that religious people do. Giving, all religious people give. But are you going to do it to earn favor with people and with God? Or are you going to do it because God loved you first? And then he's going to apply that to prayer. Prayer, which is the overarching emphasis over the next several weeks. Are you praying because you think somehow that's getting something out of God? Or are you praying because God loves you first? And then finally, fasting. Something we're less familiar with in our culture. Fasting. Would you fast to try to earn favor with God? To try to punish yourself? To try to impress other people? Or would you fast because you believe that God loves you? What is authentic spirituality? So the first thing we're going to look at is how to give authentically. Give authentically. So verse 1 is kind of an overview, and then verses 2 through 4, he gets into the details of giving. Verse 1, he gives the overview, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. It says you don't get rewarded by God when you do things with the wrong motivations, when you do things just for people or just to impress. But when you know that God has already rewarded you in Christ, and then you do things, then you have more of that reward of knowing him, of being one with him. And he says, be careful. So repeatedly, we're going to say things like this, guard yourself, be careful, be careful of your heart, be careful of your motivations. So it's an interesting way of applying a sermon here. We're going to say, just do the things that everybody does but do them in a different way. Do them guarding your heart, knowing that God loved you first. So now he gets into giving in verse 2, and he says in verse 2, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So what's their reward? They've already received praise. So these hypocrites, these mask wearers, don't have a real relationship with God, but they pretend to have one. So they're wearing a mask, pretending to be religious, and they announce their giving, right? They, they put it on social media, and everybody sees it, and everybody's like, oh, you're so generous, you're so awesome, and Jesus is like, that's all the reward you're going to get. There's a different way of living 
where you give as an overflow. You give as, as an overflow of knowing that Christ has already given to you. So that's what he's talking about here. And he says, um, don't sound a trumpet when you give. Just a little minor detail. We're not really sure if he's speaking metaphorically or literally. We, we don't really know. They might have actually blown trumpets when they gave in their uh, Jewish temple and Jewish synagogues, their gatherings of worship. We're not really sure. We know the main point. His point is don't announce it, right? So you want to be careful when you're reading the Bible. Don't like get lost in the details. Like don't blow a trumpet, but it's okay to play a saxophone when you give, right? Like that's not, that's not the point. The, the point is don't announce it. The point is don't do it to be seen. The point is don't be a hypocrite. So this is just kind of a Bible study method thing. When you see something repeated over and over again, you're like, ah, that's the main point. And then the details are kind of supporting points. So he's like, don't announce it to everybody. The other side of this is it's not like, you know, boom, you go straight to hell if anybody finds out you gave something, right? That's the other thing he's not saying. He's saying, don't give to be seen. Don't give in such a way that you're always announcing it. If you give and somebody knows, it's not that big a deal. It's fine, right? But guard yourself. Build, build safety features in your life so you're not constantly giving to be seen, giving to be known, helping the needy so that you'll look impressive instead of helping the needy because you know that Jesus gave to you when you were most spiritually needy. If you want details on, on what this looks like and how this is described in the Bible, one of the best places to go is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And the summary is there that Paul says we give because Jesus gave everything to us. So that's kind of, again, the, the New Testament details of this contrast. But, you know, one side is kind of looking religious. The other side is having a, an authentic relationship with God as our Heavenly Father. And the details are explained by Paul, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He's like, yeah, you should give, but you give because Jesus gave to you first. A couple of models, a couple of parameters for this are in the Old Testament, gleaning and tithing. I think those are two helpful parameters to think about the actual action of giving. So again, Jesus is saying the heart is the most important part. But for some of you, you're like, I've never given to the needy. I've never given to the church. I have no idea what this looks like. So a couple of parameters. One is, is gleaning. Um, gleaning is a word, I know it's a weird word, but it's an Old Testament word for these farmers. Most of them in the Old Testament were farmers, mostly agricultural economy, and they would leave some of the edges of their fields to help the poor. So the poor could, you know, they'd, they'd harvest all the apples in the apple orchard, but they'd leave some of the apples on the edges for the poor to come and pick. And so a way to translate that into today's time is whatever you produce whatever fruit you make in your job, whatever you're good at, are you setting aside some margin of that to, to give away, right? Are, are you going to share some of your skill, right? Maybe you've gone to school for 20 years and you've learned this particular specialization. Well, are you going to give away some of that to the needy, to the poor, right? Your day-to-day -day life, you're getting paid for it. You know, you're doing your normal business, but, but will there be a little margin? Will there be a little edge that you give away? So I think that's a helpful way to think about giving to the needy. Giving to the poor is the stuff that you produce, the fruit that you produce. You may not be a farmer, but you know, maybe you're a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer, um, whatever it might be. And you might have something that you can give away for free in your, your knowledge base or what, what you've built your skills around. And so that's a model. Another model would be tithing. Another Old Testament model, right? We would say the, the tithe, which is uh, 10%, is not commanded in the New Testament, but it's it's like a decent model of like, okay, setting aside 10% of your money, of your stuff to give to the needy or to the church. And then here's another paradigm to think about. He's talking specifically, specifically about giving to the needy, to the poor, 
who are hurting. But throughout the New Testament, there's also this clarification that we also give to send out the word of God, right? So people that are members or partners with our church will give to the church to pay my salary so I can preach, so we can broadcast the message to more people. We give to missionaries overseas so we can broadcast the missionary or broadcast the message to more people. And so there are these patterns of giving to the needy, but also giving to send the word out. Two things that Christians will give to. But again, those are, those are the what's. Jesus here is saying the why is the most important thing, right? Like, you know, how many, how many fruits you give away or how much percentage you give is, is less important. What's most important is, do you, do you give? Are you generous? Because you believe that Jesus was generous to you, which is completely different than giving because you think you're going to somehow earn favor with people or with God. Completely different system. To, to help us kind of think about it in a relational way, I grabbed a picture here, some kids painting a picture. I just had a grandchild, and so I'm going to get more of these paintings and drawings, hopefully soon, (laughs) by a little child. Um, She's only two days old, so not yet, but right, I'm I'm being patient. And what's going to happen, y'all, is I'm going to get a picture. Granddad's going to get a picture. I'm going to love that picture. And I'm going to put it on my refrigerator, and I'm going to brag about it, and I'm going to show it to y'all, and you're going to look at it, and you're going to be like, "Mm, I don't know. Like, it just kind of looks like a little kid scribbled on a piece of paper, right? But because of the relationship I have with her, it's going to be so beautiful to me. I'm going to treasure it. And I think that's a good way to think about our giving, right? We're we're giving to others and we're we're giving to God and his work, not because God needs us, right? But because he's given us and we have a relationship with him. That's, that's what Jesus is trying to bring it back down to. You have a relationship with your heavenly father and he loves you and he's going to reward you. And, and the relationship is the reward. Another way this is talked about by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, when a child asks their father for some money and then goes and buys a present for their father, he's going to love that present even though Lewis says he's sixpence, none the richer, right? He's a dollar, none the richer, right? He didn't didn't just make more money. He he lost money in the deal, right? He gave money away, but he still treasures it because of the relationship. And so I think that's a helpful framework for giving. We we give authentically because we're we're giving out of the overflow of this relationship that we have. So we give to the needy because Jesus gave to us and we were spiritually needy and broken and spiritually bankrupt. We give to to share that message with more people, again, because we've received that message and we love it and we're thankful for who God is and what he's done for us. And so it's that heart of giving is what really matters. So as you take next steps of giving and trying new ways to give, encourage you to consider your heart and why you're giving. The next thing we'll look at is pray authentically. Pray authentically. Look at verse 5. When you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, again, the mask wearers, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and you and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So again, is he saying that if you pray in public and someone sees it, you're automatically going to hell, right? Like fast track? No, hopefully not, because I I pray in public a lot. So, Um, (laughs) What he's saying is that's not why you pray. See, 
that, that's their whole motivation is to be seen and to be praised by men. He's like, all right, well, that's all they're going to get. That's not a relationship with God. He says, your prayer life should be about your relationship with God. So again, he's not saying we never do anything publicly. He's not saying we never are seen by men, right? In chapter 5, so context is really important when you're studying the Bible. In chapter 5, he says, let your light shine before men that they will see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus has already commanded that we exhibit our devotion to God publicly. He's just saying it can't be your motivation. It can't be your motivation. Your motivation has got to be this relationship you have with your heavenly Father. And then he talks about how the Gentiles pray, that Gentiles is another word for the nations. He's basically saying the pagans, right? So you kind of got the religious people and the non-religious people. He's like, so the religious people like to act all fancy and religious. He's like, don't be like that. That's gross. And he says, the non-religious people also have the same problem. They're trying to look religious in their non-religious way. He says, the Gentiles don't heap up empty phrases, verse 7, as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words, right? Like, don't think some magic formula is going to get God to listen to you. Pray because he's already listening to you. He already, he already loves you. Again, do you, do you think you got to get it just right for God to pay attention to you? The health and wealth gospel has, has polluted a lot of our churches in this way. This idea that if you say just the right thing, or if you have enough faith, or you say the right incantation, or have the right fancy words, that then God is bound to you because of what you did. No, God is bound to us because of what he did on the cross. He binded himself to us by giving us his very life, by giving us his son. So Jesus has taken your sin and my sin. He's given us his resurrection life. That's, that's the binding. That's how we're bound together. So now we have a new relationship. Now we're adopted as his children. Now we belong to him. We can call him Abba, Father. We can call him Daddy. We belong to him. We can talk to him. And so he talks to us not because we're so impressive. All right, so here's the obligatory picture of me and my grandchild. Oh, yeah. Isn't she beautiful? So this morning, they just got to see the back of her head, and then I realized they don't even get to see how beautiful she is. So my wife sent me another picture. It's got her face in it there. Um, But I want you to think about this. Here's the illustration. I'm not paying attention to her because she's quoting Shakespeare. Right? I'm I'm not listening to her because she uses the right order of phrases, right? Like, when you talk to your grandfather, you have to use the right, uh, you know, sequence of phrases and words, and then I will pay attention to you. So often that's how we think about prayer. I've got to use the right words. I've got to say it the right way. I gotta... No, you're a, you're a little kid. They can't do anything, and your daddy loves you. Or in this example, your granddaddy loves you, right? He, he cares. I, I delight in my grandchild not because she can do anything. Although I will say it was impressive that she could grow hair. None of my children were able to do that. <laughs> But I delight in her because she's my child, my grandchild. See, I'm already getting this mixed up. God delights in you, and God delights in me because we belong to him, and he's the one that created that relationship. It's not because of anything you did. It's not because of anything I did. And so he's like, okay, with that as the foundation, here's how you pray, right? And so then he gives what we call the Lord's Prayer, which I just want to give you a little background here. We are, there are two kinds of uh, church traditions. Really, there's a thousand. Anyway, we're going to divide them up into two categories. Uh, And if you're new to Christianity, surprise, Christians fight with each other, okay? 
And so there's this kind of raging debate between what we'll call high church and low church. High church is more structured, right? More scripted. Low church is more spontaneous, more free. We are more free. We're, we're more of the low church tradition. But what we do is whenever we can, we steal from the high church tradition whenever it benefits us, okay? Um, but this is an example of high church versus low church. If you grew up high church, you grew up memorizing the Lord's Prayer because they were full of scripted things. This is a pretty good thing to memorize because it's the Bible, right? Low church sometimes is like, oh, well, that doesn't count. If it's scripted, it's not a real prayer. You can pray scripted prayers. It's okay, right? Like you could pray scripture. And so what I want to encourage you with is two things, two applications here. Memorize the Lord's Prayer. You might not have grown up in a tradition praying it. Um, When I was a baby, we prayed in the church and we didn't go to church for like five or 10 years. And then we joined a church that didn't pray that memorized prayer. So where I learned it was, was playing sports. Our coach would have us pray it before a game. And that's where I learned the Lord's Prayer. For you, you might know the Lord's Prayer in a certain tradition. That's great. Use that memorized tradition. And just so you know, it's, it's printed in two different ways in the Bible. Jesus taught one version in Matthew, and he taught a different version in Luke. Because it wasn't that important to him that you get the exact words right. He was giving us a pattern, a general pattern of prayer. But... If you want to translate it into your own words, it really helps to memorize it to start off with. So I'd say two things, two applications. Memorize it, and then also rewrite it in your own words. Learn to speak to God according to this pattern. Grab a thesaurus or a phone and look up different words for the words and rewrite it in your own words. So that's a really good application, both sides of it. The high church application, memorize it and pray it to God, memorized. But also rewrite it in your own words, low church tradition. Make it your own. Make it spontaneous. So I want to invite you to say it with me. We'll just read it together um, as just another way for it to sink into our souls. Remembering here that this idea of seeing God as a father is absolutely revolutionary. Don't miss it. Don't miss how big this is. Okay, let's read it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So that's the ESV version from Matthew. There's another version in Luke. There are the ancient versions that different churches would have you memorize. Those are all great versions to memorize. Again, memorize one of these versions and then also begin translating it into your own words. Begin praying it in your own way, but remembering that the whole point is to pray authentically, knowing that your heavenly father loves you, knowing that his eyes are on you already. And the amount of words you pray or the amount of time you spend praying is not going to trick God into paying attention to you. He's already come after you in Jesus. He already delights in you. He's already paying attention to you. So, so talk to him. Okay. Last point, fast authentically. This one's the weirdest for us. It's the one we're we're the least familiar with. Um, Two reasons. Uh, One reason is low church tradition tends to focus on exact commands in the New Testament. That's part of our tradition. If it's not like explicitly commanded in the New Testament, we tend to not pay as much attention to it. And fasting is one of those things that's not real clearly commanded in the New Testament. Funny thing is, though, it's assumed 
right? So what Jesus says here is, when you fast, fast this way. What does that mean? Well, he's kind of assuming you're going to fast, right? Like people fast, it's the thing people do. And so I would argue that fasting is a good tool for us to use. And fasting is not beating ourselves up or punishing ourselves to win God's approval, right? Fasting is knowing that God already loves you. And so it's a tool to help you focus on him, to pray, to thank him for his love. So it's going without something that might normally fill us and satisfy us in such a way that we would forget our ultimate spiritual need for God himself. So when Jesus was fasting, we hear this story in Matthew 4, earlier in the book, the devil comes and tempts him. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And so since Jesus was fasting and Jesus spoke those words, that's a good way to think about fasting, right? That it's a tool to help us remember bodily, oh, I'm not just depending on food. I'm depending on God. So it's a way of, of refocusing our attention. Let's look at the text here in Matthew 6. Matthew 6, 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they just figure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So again, he's saying, don't walk around showing off how much you're sacrificing. Like, oh, poor me, I'm fasting and I'm miserable, but I'm giving so much up for the Lord. You know, it's like you're, you're drawing all this attention to yourself. He's not like, anoint your head, wash your face in translation, right? Like lose your, use your lotion, brush your teeth, take care of your basic hygiene, right? Like he's saying, live your normal life. That's, that's what he's saying here. Don't, don't draw attention to yourself, but make it about you and your heavenly father. So again, we, we've put more kind of instructions on how to start with baby steps in here in this resurrection prayer guide. I've got a little information there, but I'd say start really small if you've never done this before. It's not something we're used to in our society. Number one, because we're one of the richest, most well-fed societies in the history of the world, right? So in the ancient world, fasting happened all the time accidentally, right? Like you just went without food all the time. And so a spiritual person would turn that going without into a spiritual discipline. And they would remember, I'm going without, but you know what? Really, God is enough. The other thing to understand is fasting is not permanent. It's not giving up something forever. Fasting is temporary. So you're giving up something temporarily that might otherwise numb you to God's closeness and goodness. Primarily, typically it's food, right? So you might skip a meal or you might give up coffee, right? You might give up some certain thing that you depend on to sustain you And when those hunger pangs come or when that like, whoa, wait, I'm missing. Oh, wait, no, I decided I wasn't going to have that for 40 days or, you know, whatever it is. Then you say, oh, yeah, I'm going to remember that God is enough. And it's an opportunity, an exercise to turn your attention on him. Again, remember, we, we get this all wrong. We think it's like beating ourselves and punishing ourselves and trying to impress other people and trying to impress God. No, he's already impressed with you. He loves you. He delights in you. This is about you and about me really remembering that, really focusing our attention on him. So I recommend to a lot of people, it may not be food. For you, it might be giving up your, your phone, right, or the iPad or social media or, or movies, right? We think we'll, we'll die without them, but we won't. You'll survive. 
and you don't give it up forever, right? These are gifts we can enjoy. Often the things that we fast from, they're, they're good gifts to be enjoyed, right? We're not saying they're evil. We're just saying, oh, going without that for a little while will help retrain my mind that Jesus is enough. And when I get that little, that little itch inside me, I'll turn my heart back to him and say, God, help me remember that you're good. Help me remember that you love me. I see that you've adopted me in Christ. I recognize that you're my heavenly father. And we turn our attention to him in prayer. So there's some other scriptures that we can go to. I gave the example of Matthew 4. Another one is in Matthew 9, where Jesus is accused for having bad followers because they don't fast. And he says, well, they're partying right now. We're feasting because I'm here. So this is the Dave paraphrase. We're partying because Jesus is with them. He says, but I'm going to be gone away, right? When Jesus ascends to heaven, then they will fast. So another New Testament indication that fasting is a good idea for us. He says, yeah, when, when I leave, then, then they'll fast. Fasting is often seen as a component of grieving. And some of you might have experienced that, right? You go through something really hard, you're just not hungry. You just don't, you don't want to eat. You don't feel like eating. So it's often in the Old Testament and New Testament seen as a component of grieving. And then in Acts 13 and Acts 14, it's just something that people do when they're facing big decisions. You see leaders praying and fasting before they do something big or make some big change in what they're called together as a congregation. So we want to invite all of you together with us. It's your option, it's your choice, but invite everybody together to be praying and fasting over the next 40 days as we look forward to Easter, just recognizing the goodness that God's given to us. Encourage you to try it. Again, baby steps, something small. Don't try to impress anyone. Don't try to impress me. Don't try to impress your neighbor, but use it as a tool to focus and to get to know God. I want to share a little illustration about this from the book Transforming Grace by Jerry Bridges. He talks about some missionaries who recognized when they went overseas to share the gospel with a native people that it was really hard to get peanut butter there, right? They were like out in this very remote area. They all loved peanut butter and they're like, you know what though? God is good. We're going to give up peanut butter for the Lord's work, right? It's a good thing. Sacrifice we're willing to make. And so they all kind of made this pact together as a family. They were all united. We're giving up peanut butter for the Lord. And I think they were a little bit proud of themselves about it, right? Because another missionary family came to join them a year later. And that missionary family had heard that it was really hard to get peanut butter in this remote area. So that missionary family had planned ahead and had brought cases and cases of peanut butter. And guess what happened? Sadly, the same kind of things that happen in a lot of our faith communities, they couldn't get along because the one family took great pride in the fact that they'd given up this peanut butter. It had become this, this public thing, this big sacrifice. You know, they were no longer keeping it a secret, a private thing in their relationship with God, but it was a public thing. It became a, an issue that made it hard for them to get along. This, these two families couldn't keep working together. Isn't that sad? It's not a permanent thing that you give up forever, number one, but also it's, it's private. It's between you and God. So it's something to help you love God more. It's, it's not to help you be proud of how spiritual you are. Do you see the difference? It's temporary focus. And I think part of, part of why it's so important that it be temporary is if we do it permanently, we become proud because we're, we're prone to pride, right? So that's why I would recommend... Small baby steps, trying something small and doing it in a temporary way to, to focus your time of prayer on God. So, oh yeah, there's a peanut butter. 
I also heard a friend of a friend, this guy died from eating, he choked on peanut butter. Did you know it? So that's a whole other reason to give up peanut butter right there. <laughs> I always feel like I'm going to choke when I eat peanut butter. It freaks me out. Um, so authentic spirituality. A uh, little verse we skipped in, uh, where was it? Verse 14 and 15. If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Hard verse there. What I want to clarify is, again, the rest of the New Testament shows us that Jesus forgives us because of what he did for us on the cross. And then out of that, we forgive others. So here it sounds like he's saying, you know, if you ever do the wrong thing, whoop, your salvation is taken back. No, he's, he's challenging. He's pushing hypocrites. He's pushing those of us that are pretending. He's pushing those of us that are wearing a mask, pretending to be religious, and he says, this is a good test for you. If you can't forgive other people, that's a good indicator that you haven't really received the forgiveness that God has for you in Christ. It's a good indicator that you don't have an authentic relationship of love with your Heavenly Father. And so as we think about the Father's delight in us, I want to wrap up with some words that we see in Exodus 2 that are really beautiful. So Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God began and promised in Exodus. All the saving that God did with his people there, Jesus fulfills in this new covenant. Jesus comes into the Passover celebration, which is the remembrance of God's saving his people in Exodus. And in that Passover celebration, he inaugurates his new covenant. And he says he's the ultimate fulfillment of all of that. He's the ultimate salvation from ultimate spiritual slavery. And so when we look back in Exodus, we can see a lot of these beautiful pointers, a lot of these beautiful pictures of how God is reconciling us to himself, how he's becoming our spiritual father. And in Exodus 2, it tells us that God heard their groaning. It says he heard their groaning and he remembered the promises that he had made to them. He heard them. He remembered. It says he saw them and he knew them. And as we embark on these simple things like giving or praying or fasting, I want you to remember that. You're not doing it to get God to pay attention to you. We do these things because we believe he's already turned his face towards us. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us in Christ. Thank you for making that so clear by sending your son Jesus to die for us, to rise from the dead. God, you know our, our tendency to wander from this reality, our tendency to forget. Help us to remember that you are our Heavenly Father, that you delight in us, that you are pleased with us, you've adopted us as your sons and daughters. Help us to live by faith, we pray in Jesus' name.